Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome everyone to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. We're on every weekday during this 43rd Ontario election campaign. Today on the pod, the NDP blitz battleground Scarborough. The Liberals turn their focus to the classroom. The Greens have a big housing plan to pitch. And we'll weigh in on the leaders' presentation skills. It's Wednesday, May the 5th, 2022. So let's get to it. JMM, we're going to start today with Battleground Scarborough. That's six ridings. In the last House, the Conservatives had four, the Liberals had one, and the NDP had one seat. Andrea Horvath did four events in Scarborough today alone. What's going on? You know, this is incredibly competitive territory uh, in the election. Uh, the Tories obviously have seats they are uh, looking to hold on to. Uh, Doug Ford is personally very popular uh, in Scarborough, and uh, you know the the party brand is doing well there. Uh, but the Liberals, uh, before 2018 anyway, uh, the Liberals uh, had a lock on those seats in Scarborough uh, and, and held you know almost all of them for for an uninterrupted period after 2003. Um, and then the, the New Democrats uh, got you know their their first Scarborough seat in the last election. Uh, obviously, would like to uh, hang on to that and uh, build from that. Uh, but it's you know we're going to see really really uh, intense competition uh, in Scarborough, uh, presumably over the rest of the campaign as well. Scarborough has always seemed to me to be very bellwether. You know, I mean, whoever wins the government tends to win the majority of the seats in Scarborough, don't you find? Yeah, and it's it's also um, it, it's more diverse. Uh, as uh, both uh, demographically uh, than I think a lot of people necessarily assume. Uh, I, th- I think in certain people's minds, perhaps, Scarborough still uh, you know, resonates to the idea of like a, a sleepy suburb of Toronto, uh, when in fact it is you know, a, a, an extremely uh, diverse community uh, with a, a very uh, substantial mix of incomes. So you get a lot of the politics of the whole province in uh, Scarborough itself. Now, the NDP did have a bunch of announcements that they made in Scarborough today, uh, the biggest one being, of course, their new Denticare program that they want to pitch. Why don't you give us some of the details on that? Sure. The uh, The New Democrats are uh, really uh, doing this in concert, they say, with the recent uh, confidence and supply agreement federally, where uh, the, the uh, federal liberals and New Democrats have agreed to bring forward a, a dental care program. Uh, the Ontario NDP want to build on that, and uh, they would provide families with a household income of less than $200,000 a year uh, with a, a provincially publicly funded uh, dental care program. Uh, the uh, the NDP are also saying, I, rather I should say, uh, NDP leader Andrew Horvath uh, says that while they are building on that federal uh, confidence and supply agreement, uh, she was very uh, uh, clear that if that agreement were to fall apart, uh, not that anybody in the NDP wants that to happen, but if that agreement were to fall apart, uh, the NDP government would uh, still make that program whole. They, they want to make sure this goes forward, uh, whether or not uh, federal politics allow it. 
Now, I gather one of the interesting comparisons here is that the federal program, the confidence and supply agreement the liberals and NDP have in Ottawa, would be for those who make $90,000 a year or less. And the one that Andrea Horvath was pitching today is for those with incomes of $200,000 or less, which you and I have joked about in the past, the NDP kind of considers to be middle-class people. Now, we both know if you make 200 grand a year, you're not middle-class in the province of Ontario. You're actually in the 1%. But how are they going to figure out all of that? I mean, somewhere, some way, someone's got to figure out how to make those two plans mesh. Right. And I, I suspect a, a large chunk of it will simply be that uh, the the province will end up paying more. Uh, you know, the, the, the feds are not going to pay, at least if you assume that uh, confidence and supply agreement is as written, uh, the feds are not going to pony up to uh, help make uh, households with $200,000 a year in income uh, have access to this this program. So that'll be something that a, a provincial government uh, would have to pay for. Probably relevant at this point to mention that while uh, the NDP have provided their platform, they have not provided a full costing yet. Uh, just to remind our listeners that uh, the NDP said that they wanted to wait until the provincial budget was released, and then they would base their costing off of the, the most recent uh, financial numbers from the province of Ontario. We have not seen that yet. Uh, Ms. Horvath, again, was asked about the timing of, of uh, when that costing would be out and says it will be coming in the very near future. <laughs> <laughs> that is one of those great expressions, right? They always say it's coming soon yes. or it's coming in the fullness of time in or in the days, days ahead. Yes. Or, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, now, when you go to Scarborough, you... Um, one of the things that makes Scarborough different is that you don't just give interviews to the English language press. There are uh, ethnic press, as they are called, uh, which um, uh, which you really do, if you want to be a player in Scarborough, have to spend some time with. And Andrea Horvath did that today as well, didn't she? Uh, yes. Uh, you know, Andrea Horvath doing uh, a round of interviews, both with uh, Chinese community media and uh, Tamil community media. And, you know, this is something that uh, you, you, you learn very quickly in provincial politics, that uh, you, you have to take uh, every community's media seriously. And uh, both uh, the current premier and his predecessor, Kathleen Wynne, you know, they had people dedicated in their offices to doing uh, media outreach uh, specifically to uh, these communities who are, uh, you know, not represented in the, let's call it, you know, traditional uh, mainstream media. Now, not to be outdone, Stephen Del Duca and the Liberals maybe saw that Andrea Horvath and the NDP did four events today. So the Liberals did five. Um, th that's a full schedule, I gotta say. Uh, starting in Woodbridge, the riding, of course, that Mr. Del Duca used to represent and that he would like to represent again. He's going up against Michael Tobolo, who's an Associate Minister of Mental Health and Addictions in the Progressive Conservative Cabinet. Uh, but Del Duca also did an interview on Bill Kelly's show on 900 CHML in Hamilton. He did an event at the Lawrence TTC station to pitch his buck a ride plan. He did an event at the Science Center TTC station. Again, same idea. And then uh, in the evening, uh, late afternoon, early evening, an event with Mississauga supporters. So, I mean, here we go again. Barnstorm, 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 which you got to do if you're the least well-known of all the leaders. Uh, right. You know, res respect the hustle, I believe the kids say. Um, <laughs> it's very reminiscent of the uh, Ontario Liberal leadership race uh, where uh, he won, you know, in, in large part just by, you know, outworking everyone. He, you know, was all over the province meeting Liberal supporters. You know, if, if you were a voting member in that race, 
you know, you had really good odds of meeting Stephen Del Duca and, you know, shaking his hand at some point. If Del Duca keeps up a schedule like this, nobody is going to be able to say uh, that uh, win or lose, he didn't work for it. The Liberals also made a big announcement today as it related to class sizes. Del Duca wants to cap the size of classes in public schools at 20 students per class, and that would require the hiring of 10,000 more teachers. Um, I guess we can assume that the teacher unions uh, are pretty much on side with this (laughs) announcement. Yes, uh, you know, one could uh, make the argument, certainly, that, uh, you know, part of the mission of any liberal leader is getting the teachers unions back on board. Uh, You know, teachers unions largely uh, backed the NDP in the last election, and that was a a breakdown of relationship that had existed between the party and teachers unions for many years. Uh, But I don't think that's the only thing that's happening here, of course, you know, uh, the, the liberal brand is very closely associated with education policy generally. Uh, so you have Stephen Del Duca here promising uh, to hire 10,000 new teachers. Um, that would cost, uh, the party has estimated about a billion dollars. Uh, again, like the NDP, the Liberals have not provided a full costing yet, but the Liberals also have not provided their full platform. 10,000 new teachers is uh, about 7.6% more relative to the 130,000 teachers that already exist in Ontario. Uh, but here's the part where I sort of point out the hitch is that like the province doesn't actually hire teachers for the most part. School boards do. And there's all sorts of questions about uh, a policy like this. You know, uh, you you don't just need the teachers, you need classrooms to put them in. That means physical buildings that are, uh, you know, sometimes very slow to build. Of course, uh, the Liberals have also promised to build new schools, but, you know, you have to coordinate the hiring of personnel with the actual space that uh, exists to, 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 you know, instruct students in. Um, You know, in theory, this might work more quickly in a place like Toronto, where at least in the public school board, there are uh, excess school and classrooms uh, around. But uh, in fast growing suburbs in the 905, where they they simply don't have uh, the room to uh, teach the students that they already have, much less get, you know, uh, a thousand more teachers in, I don't know, Milton, let's say. Well, one of the things that we like to do on this podcast daily is put the promises that the leaders make uh, through a prism of critical analysis. And to be sure, there are, you know, great bumper stickers like buck a ride or, (laughs) you know, 10,000 new teachers, you know, all that stuff looks good on a bumper sticker. But we want to dive down a little deeper and see how it would work. I think you've made some great points about some of the you know, devil being in the details here. Uh, I'd add one more to that, which is what about in some of the more remote parts of Ontario where you've got maybe a class of 21 students? Are you telling me that the cap on class size at 20 would mean creating a whole new, you know, a whole new class for one student? Or, I mean, would they hire another teacher up there in a board that might not have as much money, cut the classes in two? I don't know. There's a lot of details around this that I think still have to be flushed out. No, and this is why the uh, liberals, when they were in government, you know, they uh, hedged their uh, classroom size promises uh, for exactly those reasons, right? The the, the policy around classroom sizes that the liberals uh, endorsed, you know, has a lot of flexibility for exactly those kinds of uh, issues. Now, obviously, they aren't in government, and they can make a bit more... um, black and white promises, let's put it that way. Um, and they'll leave execution to the, the problems of, if they make it into government. <laughs> I also noted the other day that when Stephen Del Duca was asked, okay, these are the schools you want to build, would you shut down any schools? He gave a categorical no. 
Now, anybody in public life has got to, or anybody who's followed public life has got to know that you can't make that kind of a commitment years ahead of fact. I mean, the reality is there are parts of this province where the population is going to be declining. And if a school doesn't have the student body to warrant its continuation, they're going to shut it down. So that's a, to, I don't know, I heard that promise. And to me, it sounded like a promise just begging to be broken. Well, and the Liberals, of course, got into a lot of trouble in the the, the late part of Kathleen Wynne's tenure when uh, they were proposing to uh, uh, close schools, uh, particularly in rural areas, uh, which are, are losing, especially losing uh, a school-age population, as, as you alluded to, uh, became this incredibly difficult issue. They declared a moratorium on school closures across Ontario. Uh, that moratorium is still in place. The Tories left it uh, and, and have not uh, touched it. Uh, so at least in, in one sense, all Stephen Del Duca has to do to, to uh, you know, meet that promise is not do anything, even if he, he does win the election. But, you know, the, the reason why we talk about school closures is because like real circumstances are changing across the province. And, and we talk about declining rural populations, especially school aged children. Like at a certain point, you have these half-empty schools scattered across the province, and it costs money to maintain them. And, uh, you know, the reason we talk about school closures is because somebody's got to pay for those. Yeah. Here's where I do my little Bill Davis reference, because <laughs> I knew you were waiting for it. Back in the 1960s, before he was premier, Bill Davis was the Minister of Education for Ontario for nine years in the John Robarts government. And the province was booming so much, and the revenues were coming into the Treasury so quickly that Mr. Davis often on many days, opened three schools in a day. He would travel all over the province, cut the ribbon on one, get on a plane, go somewhere else, cut the ribbon on another. There were day after day after day after day when he would open three schools at a time. And so when it came time for him to run for the leadership, he knew everybody and right. he'd been everywhere. <laughs> so that's one of the advantages of being the Minister of Education. Just while we're talking about uh this is also, I think, relevant to Stephen Del Duca. I mean, he was transportation minister under the Liberals and, you know, traveled all over the province, you know, for transit and highway projects while he was minister. Uh, and then uh, there was a, a relatively brief period where he uh, was out of the transportation portfolio and he was the... Oh gosh, it's one of those ministries. Economic where name, development, I think he was. Yeah, but but it was they tacked on a bunch of other words too. But but basically, the minister for ribbon cuttings and and yeah, traveled all over the province. You know, uh, uh, announcing uh, provincial funding for all sorts of you know small uh, projects here and there. But these things matter because that's in part why Stephen Del Duca was able to go all over the province when he was running for the Liberal leadership. And yeah, people knew his name. <laughs> There you go. We should give some attention to the Green Party today. The Greens have a bit of a disadvantage in as much as their leader represents a riding in Guelph, Mike Schreiner, and he is tending to travel around parts of the province that are two, three, even four hours away from Toronto, so he doesn't necessarily get a lot of the coverage that the other leaders get when they spend time in Toronto. Mr. Schreiner, of course, going to the parts of the province where he thinks he has the best shot at winning some seats. But he did make a big announcement today promising to build 160,000 units of what he called affordable housing. What's that about? Well, this is part of the uh, broader green housing plan, and uh, they started rolling this out last year, and I wrote about it at tvo.org. Uh, our listeners can certainly uh, find it there. Uh, you know, I, I think it would be fair to say that the Greens have the, the most aggressive uh, housing plan uh, on offer in the election uh, right now. Um, and of course, they can do that because, uh, to be slightly unkind, nobody expects them to form a majority government at the end of all this. Uh, and so they can afford to be a, a bit ambitious and, and you know, uh, 
maybe move the bar uh, so that other parties have to follow them. Um, but, uh, you know, part of that uh, plan is, you, you know, they, ha- they have stuff about they want to end exclusionary zoning and really, uh, you know, uh, take a crowbar to municipal councils who are recalcitrant about uh, a- approving uh, new homes. Uh, but part of it is also uh, building uh, lots of uh, affordable housing, partnering with co-ops, partnering with uh, the nonprofit sector to uh, really, you know, not just address the sort of market rate housing needs uh, in the province, but also to go after uh, the, the affordable sector and really help uh, people on uh, lower incomes. Uh, I will note here, and we've said this a lot already, this podcast about what we're waiting for. Um, the, the Liberals do have a, a housing plan on the way, but uh, I, I don't think it's coming this week, let me put it that way. Um, and uh, again, we will see it in the fullness of time. <laughs> in the fullness of time, yes, after full and frank discussions internally, no doubt. Uh, Let's talk about Doug Ford. Doug Ford, as we remind everybody, is still the Premier of Ontario, even though he runs what they call a caretaker government at the moment. In other words, no controversial decisions, just basically minding the store. But for the purposes of the campaign, we will refer to him as the leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario. And what did he hit the Liberals with today? Uh, the main Tory attack of the day on the Liberals is uh, over road tolls, basically saying that uh, the the Liberal uh, government, when it was in power, imposed uh, road tolls on various parts of the province, including uh, two highways uh, that connect to the 407 uh, that the, the Tories now in power have since removed. Um, the, uh, the attack, uh, I guess I'm I bear some small responsibility for in one sense. Uh, I actually asked Del Duke about road tolls earlier this week because in all the discussion of their uh, buck a ride province-wide policy uh, uh, proposal, uh, Del Duca had said that he's a big believer in the role of prices to change people's behavior, to change their preferences, which I think is a totally uh, defensible, uh, even appropriate uh, perspective for a policymaker. Uh, But Historically, Stephen Del Duca was also one of the people who fought uh, most against the idea of uh, putting road tools on the uh, Gardner Expressway and the Don Valley Parkway, which was a, an issue during the Wynn government. And so I, I asked him about that and, and asked him further uh, whether the uh, the Liberals, if they were in fact elected to power, would they uh, uh forswear any tolls on uh, Ontario highways where they do not already exist. Uh, and he didn't answer the question very clearly. So the Tories uh, clipped that out and they sent it around to the media today and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll do penance for my sins or something, There you I go, guess. making mischief again. Or, yes. or maybe that's just called doing your job. Well, I, th- <laughs> I thought it was a fair question. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. All right. Let's talk about uh, something that I think doesn't get a lot of play on the campaign trail, and that is the leadership and presentation skills of the four major party leaders. You know, I often get criticized when I write columns for TVO.org on overdoing the presentation skills differences among the leaders. But the fact of the matter is, when you talk to real people out there, that kind of stuff sticks. That's the kind of stuff that they remember, that they notice. You know, how well was somebody able actually to do a piece to camera and convince that voter uh, that he or she was being genuine about what they were saying? So I think presentation skills matter. And... um, One of the things, let's start in order of precedence from the last house. We'll start with Doug Ford. I find, well, you know what? Let's play the clip first, and then I'm going to come back and make a point, okay? Here's Doug Ford at his big Get It Done rally in Etobicoke at the Toronto Congress Centre last night. What what energy, I'll I'll tell you, what energy, and thank you 
for that incredible uh, welcome. Now, what's interesting about that, Mr. Ford mentioning the energy of the crowd and how energized it was and so on, that comment was on his teleprompter. <laughs> it was part of the speech. I read the speech, and it, it had numerous references to the fact of Mr. Ford saying, wow, what energy. And I don't know. The man's been premier for four years. You figure he could ad-lib that, and you wouldn't need that in the speech. But it raises the whole issue of the fact that four years later, Doug Ford is still pretty much unable to make a campaign announcement without reading it off the teleprompter. Um, I think many Tories don't care at all. I think many people who don't like him find it incredible that his presentation skills have not really improved all that much to the point where he still even needs to read his ad-libs off a teleprompter. I don't know. What do you think? I, I do think that <laughs> Once you bracket in the fact that he he is still reliant on a, a teleprompter in ways that you know other uh, political leaders are not, um, his speaking style has definitely improved relative to where it was four years ago. Uh, and certainly, I mean, you know, I, I I did cover him a little bit when he was a Toronto city councillor, um, and uh, you know, he he is capable of ad libbing. I've <laughs> I've watched him do it. Uh, one of the um, uh, one of the problems for Doug Ford that I think his uh, political staff know is that if he is given room to ad lib, sometimes he gets himself in trouble. And so I think that might be part of why he is still so tightly scripted. Like that comment about the yahoos on the South Lawn of Queen's Park? Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, that and also, I mean, some of the stuff when he was a Toronto City Councillor uh, speaking um, extemporaneously, you know, some of that stuff still, I'm sure, will find its way into attack ads now, you know, many, many years later. All right, let's go on to the NDP leader, Andrea Horvath. How do you find her doing so far? Uh, well, you know, it, it's... <sighs> It's almost unfair to say this, but I mean, she's like the most experienced campaigner. So I expect her to continue to do well. I mean, she uh, she does speak, uh, you know, she, she answers questions uh, from reporters. Uh, you know, <laughs> we are still grumbling a little bit about how we haven't gotten that fully costed platform, but that's like the reporter's job. Um, but, you know, she she uh, she gives her her comments, her speeches. She answers questions reasonably well. You know, every once in a while, you definitely see her her trip up on something or have to correct a sentence. But again, she's she's the most experienced campaigner of the four uh, leaders on the ballot this time. I guess I'm going to be the designated curmudgeon here today because <laughs> uh, I'm also going to find, um, well, let me give let me give her her due where it is due. Uh, you know, she got this nickname of the Steel Town Scrapper because uh, she represents a Hamilton riding, and she is a very personable person and talks about how she's going to fight for the little guy and this, that, and the other thing. Um, but I am surprised from time to time that Ms. Horvath, who, as you point out, is the most experienced leader, this is her fourth general election as NDP leader, she still makes silly mistakes. Uh, she did a, an event in a riding recently where uh, she was joined by one of her candidates with whom this was the third time she was doing an event, and she got the candidate's name wrong. And then there was another occasion as well at Queen's Park where, she, she, to her credit, she doesn't read off a teleprompter. She just keeps a little cheat sheet of notes in front of her. Um, I, I remember this press conference because she tried really hard to introduce the other MPPs who were with her, who were members of her caucus, and she didn't want to look at the cheat sheet. She tried to do it very naturally, and she sort of had to give up at one point because she realized, dang, I can't remember the writing or the critic portfolio of this MPP who she had been serving with for three years. So those kinds of moments can 
can lead one to uh, conclude, hmm, is she ready for prime time? Now, maybe these are human stupid mistakes and I'm overdoing it here. But again, I think presentation is important. And from time to time, uh, she hasn't got the goods. No, and, and I would add, you know, it, uh, it, it might not matter you know, a year before an election, nine months before an election, when it's a, a, a press conference at Queen's Park that maybe six reporters are, are paying attention to, and it doesn't get clipped for the, the evening news. Uh, but, you know, those small mistakes, as small as they are, you know, if they happen, uh, you know, in the middle of a campaign, when you've got, you know, dozens of cameras pointed at you, uh, even that small stuff can be really uh, lethal to a a campaign and to its energy. I don't think we've seen anything uh, really devastating yet from any of the four leaders, but, you know, it, it, it absolutely can matter. And I will give her her due as well in saying that she is the only leader that has a campaign bus where she invites members of the media to come on her bus and basically, you know, I got nothing to hide here. Come on the bus, hang out with me, uh, you know, travel with me during the course of the day. Uh, I give her big props for that because uh, most of the other leaders are, you know, Doug Ford jokes about being in the bubble at Queen's Park. He's on the bubble at the, on the road much of the time, too, trying to keep the journalists at bay. Uh, All right. Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca. Uh, Admittedly, we're on day two of the campaign. But what are your initial impressions of him? Well, I mean, we already spoke a bit about the the schedule that he's keeping. He's clearly, uh, you know, putting the the work in. Um, in terms of the the events themselves, I mean, uh, you know, we, you and I have watched so many of these press conferences over the last two years, you know, through a, a Zoom window or that kind of thing. Um, I have yet to actually get to a liberal event in person. Uh, I did hit a green one yesterday, um, but uh, you know, I, I think. Uh, he has uh, a, a bit more energy than we are used to seeing from Del Duca. Uh, you know, he would be the first to joke about how he's not like exactly the most charismatic speaker. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think he is, uh, you know, I, I don't know how else to put this except to say that he, he's really showing up for the campaign in a way uh, that, uh, you know, even a year ago, I think he would have, you know, come off as a bit, uh, you know, lower energy, that kind of thing. And so, um, you know, as, as far as the presentation that we're talking about here goes, uh, you know, I, I think Del Duca is doing well. Yeah, I'm going to take my hat off to him as well in as much as he never uses a teleprompter. He makes campaign announcements with barely a look down at his bullet point script. He really seems to know what he's talking about in as much as he's got the details, he's got the numbers, he's got the facts, uh, pretty well committed to memory when he goes before the cameras and the microphones and articulates whatever the policy of the day is going to be. Uh, From time to time, his enthusiasm gets away with him, uh, gets away from him rather, Uh, (laughs) <laughs> he did an announcement about uh, Buck a Ride a few days ago, and in doing so, he started by saying, I had the honor of taking the subway and the streetcar down to our location here near the Toronto waterfront. And I just remember thinking when I heard that, you know, I don't think anybody feels honored <laughs> to be taking the TTC these days, uh, even though it's not as crowded as it once was before COVID. But still, you know, it's it's still... Some days it's not great taking the no, TTC. I, Let's just put I, it that way. I love way. the city and I love the subway and I love the transit system that this that keeps the city running. But nobody's proud to ride the subway. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We're not honored to take the subway anywhere. Yeah. So, I mean, listen, I'm being picky here, but those are those moments. But in the main, in the main, I'd, I'd have to say that uh, he's in charge of his brief. He's really on his game. Um, 
one thing I'd like to see, he still has his press conferences very choreographed. It's still the old one question, one follow-up thing, uh, which, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm so much of two minds on that. On the one hand, it keeps things very civilized. On the other hand, the, and I write about this in a column on, on TVO.org if people want to follow up on that. You know, on the other hand, these things get so antiseptic and very polite and everybody's a little, the, the kind of dynamic in a scrum that you used to get where there'd be a certain amount of tension and you could really go at the leader, like all that stuff's gone now. And I think as a result, the leaders, particularly the premier, uh, can get away with skating a lot when when they shouldn't. Well, and, you know, to give Del Duca uh, his due, uh, the, the the aforementioned uh, question about uh, road tools, uh, that was actually a, a, a I, they, they gave me a second bite at the apple because I asked. I had, I had already had my question and follow up. And then I, you know, discreetly asked, you know, uh, hey, can I get another question? In? And, and they did allow me that. So I, I did appreciate that. Okay, let's do the last of the major party leaders, and that would be Mike Schreiner, leader of the Greens. As we suggested earlier, doesn't quite get the attention that the other leaders do get. But what do you what do you think of what you've seen so far? You watched his housing announcement today. Uh, I did watch his housing announcement today. As I mentioned, uh, I also went to uh, an event in Beaches, East York, uh, yesterday because uh, it was you know only a few minutes from my house, so I had <laughs> no really good excuse not to go in person. Um, and uh, you know, clearly uh, he's uh, you know. Uh, energized, uh, you know, speaking about uh, a platform that he uh, really cares about. Uh, You know, I I think some of the reporters at Queen's Park, we've occasionally joked that, you know, it's really good news for the other three parties that there's only one Mike Schreiner, because he's actually like, he's a very good communicator. Uh, You know, he he's managed, you know, the the impressive task of being a fourth party to win, you know, a seat in the legislature. Uh, That doesn't happen a lot. And, uh, you know, if he manages to hold his seat in Guelph, uh, you know, that even just holding his own seat would would be a a pretty good uh, accomplishment in this election. Um, You know, he is realistic, I think it's fair to say, about what the party's actual, uh, uh, you know, likely outcomes in this election. He's he's not expecting a green majority. Um, but, you know, he, he is talking, uh, I think, honestly about, uh, you know, he has been able to do a lot as a single MPP for the Green Party. And he thinks if they were to get two or three or four MPPs, uh, they could do more. And and I'm saying that not to like give you his pitch uh, for the Green Party, but, you know, it's it's refreshing, frankly, to uh, hear one of the party leaders say, you know, like, yeah, we're not going to form government. That's not you know, really what we're, we're going to do here, but we can do a lot of good stuff, uh, even within the, the bounds of, uh, our, 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 what we are likely to accomplish. Yeah. I think the line of his, I like the most is, is I'm happy to have any party steal any of my material, right? Right. He knows he's not going to be winning this election and he's put out the policy that he thinks we need in order to get to the, to the promised land. And he would be just delighted if any of the parties that end up forming government steal his ideas and implement him. And it's not every politician who says that, but as you say, Schreiner is realistic about his chances. And more than anything, he just wants to see some of his agenda implemented. All right, let's move on and talk about polling because uh, since we last recorded, there are four new public opinion surveys. I hasten to remind everybody, these are a wonderful indication of what people thought yesterday. They are not an indication necessarily of what people will do on June the 2nd. 
Main Street Research has a poll showing the Conservatives at 37%, with a 10-point lead over the Liberals at 27, New Democrats hot on their trail at 25, and the Greens at 6. Then you have a Leger poll, which again very much mirrors what we just said, Conservatives 36, Liberals 29, New Democrats 25, Greens at 5, and the new Blue Party which is this sort of more right-wing party, more to the right of the progressive conservatives, they're chiming in at 2%. So that's the first time I've seen them show up in a poll. Why don't you grab the next two? Uh, right. The uh, third poll we have is from Earnscliff. Uh, they have the progressive conservatives at 35%, uh, the liberals at 28 the NDP at 24%, uh, the Greens at 7 and others at 6%. Uh, and then uh, Innovative Research uh, has the Tories at 37%, the liberals at 29%, uh, the NDP at 24 and uh, the Greens at 7 They're essentially all saying the same thing right now, which is that the majority government that the conservatives would like is within reach, but might not be there yet. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, depending on which one of these polls you give the most credence to, right? I mean, if that Main Street result is correct and the Tories have a 10-point lead on the nearest party, they're probably looking at a pretty safe majority. But, uh, you know, if that Leger poll is right, uh, and maybe even, you know, if that Earnscliff poll is right, uh, you know, where the the margins are smaller, um, you know, you could still be looking at a Tory minority. Okay, partner, you got anything else for this wonderful day two of the campaign? Uh, No, I mean, it's uh, the second day. It already feels like it's the second week. (laughs) (laughs) It's been busy. You know, the the leaders, uh, certainly the opposition leaders are doing lots of events. So far, Doug Ford's holding it to about one a day. But of course, everybody knows who he is. He doesn't need uh, further name recognition. The other guys do. No, and and I think, you know, if... If I were advising the Tories, this is exactly the kind of thing that you could imagine, you know, telling them, like, you're ahead in every poll. More events just gives you more chances to make an unforced error. Just keep it, you know, keep it slim, keep it, uh, you know, uh, keep it uh, a simple schedule. And, uh, you know, if things turn bad on you, then sure, maybe start doing more events. But for now, you know save your energy (laughs) classic front runners play it safe strategy and when you said if i were advising the tories my head almost exploded there just to let you know okay let's not have it explode before i get to read this closing which is advising any party (laughs) would not be allowed under tvo's policies or god my own inclinations Right on. And that's day two of this 43rd general election campaign. A reminder that we are here every weekday during the writ period right through to June the 2nd. JMM, we'll see you again out on the hustings. See you tomorrow, Steve.